재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Korea's number one foreign language station 101.3 TBS EFM For previous episodes of The Bookend, please search TBS EFM The Bookend via podcast or go to tbsefm.seoul.kr and search for our program. Some years ago, I started calling myself Ginger. Peter. Sherlock. Rosemary. Emmanuel. The Archbishop of Canterbury. You may know me better as... The Real Slim Shady. Rumoured to be the new signing for Westminster and the Thames. And I just love to ride horses. But only if the Banjo Union Bolt has been corrected. First chapter. It's time again for first chapter. We read you an excerpt from a different book every Sunday morning, usually from the exposition. Today's story is Yi Seung-woo's Bongnyeon Gongwon, or Magnolia Park. In this story, the main character returns from a business trip and receives a call from his estranged wife. She tells him that her sister's husband, who was in his 40s, has passed away. The funeral would be held the following day at the Magnolia Park Cemetery. Unfortunately for the main character, Magnolia Park is also home to a wedding hall where a woman he used to know is getting married on the same day as the funeral. In the excerpt I'm about to read, the main character is in a cab on his way over to Magnolia Park. The cab driver is making small talk and just asked him if he's on his way over to Magnolia Park because it's Teacher's Day. Apparently, people like to visit their mentors' graves on Teacher's Day. I'll be back after a track featured in Stephen King's 1987 work, Misery. Here's 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover by Paul Simon. Magnolia Park by Yi Seung-woo I had no idea today even was Teacher's Day. Really? I figured since you were going to Magnolia Park that... Anyhow, what's taking you out there so early today then? A wedding? I said. A wedding? Uh, actually, a funeral. The driver gave me a cautious, probing glance through the rearview mirror, but I was even more confused than he was. I hastily tried to explain. Actually, it's, it's both. Both? It's a coincidence. I quickly responded before looking away. And it was a coincidence. Magnolia Park was used for both weddings and funerals. The driver's expression seemed to be asking, how was that possible? But it was the truth. 
I was on my way to a funeral, but someone was also holding a wedding in the same place at the same time. I was trying not to think too hard about what a strange coincidence it was. I didn't want to go to the wedding, and I wasn't even obligated to attend. If my wife's brother-in-law hadn't suddenly passed away, or if his funeral hadn't been at Magnolia Park, I wouldn't have gone there in the first place. I was going to Magnolia Park for the funeral and not for the wedding, but it was odd. Even if it was just something I said in the spur of the moment, why did I blurt out wedding before funeral? Maybe it was because I had been thinking more about the wedding than the funeral. When my wife called the night before, I had to struggle not to think of the wedding I had already been invited to. I couldn't just ignore the amazing coincidence of it all. I hadn't been intending to go to the wedding, but then, whether I wanted to go or not, there was now this funeral that made not going impossible. The whole situation made me feel rather odd, like someone had suddenly stomped on my brakes. I may have just made it sound like my unusual thirst and the previous night's excessive drinking were only related to the sadness and pain connected with that man's meaningless death, but that was just dissimulation, or at the very least, exaggeration. More than that, it was hearing the words Magnolia Park and this recent turn of uncanny events that reminded me of events that I was unable to pass off as simple coincidence. Events that had forced me to come. Of all the places, why there? I shook my head as if shaking off my memories of the place. They sometimes have weddings there these days. Apparently, the sculpture garden in the museum is supposed to be pretty nice. But really, how can a wedding and a funeral end up being on the same day? No matter how you figure it, it's really something else, the taxi driver said, although he still looked skeptical. But how could I possibly explain the circumstances that resulted in the coincidence of that woman's wedding and my wife's brother-in-law's funeral happening on the same day at the same place? After all, he didn't know her and she didn't know him. And which of them did I know better? Her? Or maybe him? Inexplicable as the death of my wife's brother-in-law was, if there was anything I could explain, it was this. Since our separation, my wife had called me exactly three times. And now that I think about it, those three calls were all about the same brother-in-law. The first call was about two months earlier, which made it about five months after my wife made a non-negotiable demand for our separation, and I moved out. During those five months, I called my wife several times, but she never called me. When she did finally call, she asked me how my life was, and I replied in a rather downcast voice that it could barely be called a life. I was secretly hoping that she might feel some pity for me, either because of what I had said or because of the tone of my voice. But she wasn't the sort of woman who could be won over so easily. When she started with, the reason I called is, and went straight to her point, she made it clear that her call had nothing to do with her own personal feelings. 
That was the sort of woman she was. The reason I called is to let you know that this Saturday evening my older sister is going to be having a housewarming party, she said. They just moved into a new apartment ten days ago. My parents will be coming up from the countryside, so it would be best if you came. Their house is in W City in Owondong, Dandelion Apartments, Building 12, Number 1105. Be there by 6. Got it. Everything all right with you? I asked. Why, is there something I need to worry about? No, of course not. I'm hanging up, she said. But to you, am I still... She hung up before I could finish. That my wife's sister had bought an apartment was big news, at least for my wife's family. My wife's sister had been married for 15 years, and the apartment they had just moved into was their first home. My sister-in-law was 40 years old then, and her husband was 45. There was no way that anyone who knew them could have failed to recognize how much they had struggled just for the sake of buying a house. To know them was to know just how desperate they were to own a home and how they had slaved away to make that happen. Seven years before they bought this apartment, they had put all their savings and some money they had borrowed from relatives into renting out one floor of a building. They divided it up into small cubicles and rented them out as study spaces for middle school and high school students. In one corner of the floor, they had also built a small room where they lived with their two children. My wife's brother-in-law worked as a bus driver at an after-school math academy for young children during the day and then took over for his wife watching their business at night. They lived that way for seven years. Their situation before then was no different. My wife's brother-in-law was working as what amounted to a manual laborer with a book wholesaler, while his wife worked as a clerk at a department store in the outskirts of Seoul. It took her an hour and a half on the subway just to get to work. For as long as I'd known them, I'd never once seen them take a break or slack off. They weren't the sort of people to idle away time or waste money. I'd heard they'd never even taken a single summer vacation in the 15 years they'd been married. More than once, I got the impression that they, especially the husband, were rather inflexible, but they always seemed hardworking and responsible. Despite that, however, they always reeked of poverty. The painful reason for why they were so poor was that, ultimately, neither of them had inherited anything. And perhaps that was also why they were so desperate to own their own home. 
There was no way that someone like me, who had been able to afford a decently sized 32 Pyeong apartment early in his marriage, could really understand the way they had lived. It wasn't that I didn't have any sympathy for them. More than anything, I was just put off by how squalid their lives seemed. At any rate, we never felt very close, and of course, we only met infrequently. Neither they nor I were the sort of people who could feel comfortable outside of our own spaces. It was as if buying a home was their sole reason for living. Everything else they might have wanted got pushed back until after that. Nothing could come before their buying an apartment. I once witnessed one of their kids, who was in middle school at the time, begging his parents for a computer. His father simply replied, I'll get you one after we move to a new home. Many other families had a couple of cars, but for them, buying a car was also on hold until after their move. I even heard that they had never once sung at a dorebang, even when dorebang were at their most popular. My wife once tried telling her sister they should try to enjoy life a little while they were still young, since they'd regret it later if they didn't. I still remember clearly what her sister had said. It won't be too late to enjoy ourselves after we get a house. Everything possible was put off until they were able to move into an apartment. There was nothing more important or pressing for the two of them than getting a house. And then, after 15 years of marriage, they had finally done it. How could it not be a big deal? How could I possibly skip the housewarming party they had worked so hard the last 15 years for? Neither my wife nor I were as thoughtless as that. My wife wasn't just suppressing her displeasure and calling me because of the elders of her family, who hadn't yet been informed of our separation and were sure to be incensed if they found out, were coming up from the countryside to Seoul for the party, but also because celebrating her sister's family's purchase of a house was meaningful in and of itself. It was only right that I went, and I was happy to attend. Some people call me the space cowboy of love Some people call me Maurice Cause I speak of the pompatists of The songs we played in between were tracks mentioned in Stephen King's 1992 work, Gerald's Game, starting with These Boots Are Made for Walkin' by Nancy Sinatra, followed by The Joker by Steve Miller Band. Today I read from Isungu's Mongnyan Gongwon or Magnolia Park, translated by Eugene Larson Hallock. It was published as part of the Asia Publishers K-Fiction Bilingual Editions. Copies are available any place where books are sold. Isungu, who happens to be our Helen's favorite writer, has been writing since 1981. According to critic Jin Jong-seok, Isungu poses the question as to how it was that we ever escaped from our feelings of existential guilt, 
how dangerous the sturdy-seeming house of day-to-day -day life actually is, why we constantly fail in our efforts to communicate with others, and how the present situations we find ourselves in were ill-fated from the very beginning. Later in the story, we meet the mystery woman who's getting married at the Magnolia Park. If you want to know what happens next, check out Lee Seung-woo's Magnolia Park. It is time for my closing quote. Since we covered three very dark pieces today, I chose a lighter note to end on. Here's a quote from Oh, the Places You Won't Go, a radio drama by David Rakoff, wherein Dr. Seuss writes to Gregor Samsa. I'm astonished at times when I think of the past, of my thousands of rhymes, of how life is so vast. I'm left, then, to wonder how anyone gleans a purpose or sense of what anything means. It's not ours for the knowing, it's meaning abstruse. We both best be going, your loving friend, Seuss. Once again, that was from Oh, the Places You Won't Go by David Rakoff. We have arrived at the end of our show. Please go to our website if you would like to learn more about next week's topic. I'm Jamie Chang. Have a wonderful week and tune in again next Sunday at 10 a.m. for another brand new installation of The Bookend. Taking us out is a track from Stephen King's 1986 horror novel, It. Please enjoy Doors singing Light My Fire. Much higher.